temper, temper. Hey folks, welcome back to another edition of the Gribble Nation Roadcast, which is fueled by Anchor FM. Uh, I'm your host Dan, and welcome into a new episode of Just Passing Through. Yes, it's that time of the year where the Super Bowl is upon us here in early February. And for the second year in a row, uh, the Roadcast will be hosting a Super Bowl preview show for road enthusiasts. Only this time we're not going to be looking at the game itself from a football X's and O's standpoint. We're going to be looking at the cities involved in this game. Uh, The Cincinnati Bengals will be taking on the Los Angeles Rams. Uh, So we'll be talking about the cities of Cincinnati and L.A., Uh, Going over some of their history, going over some of the roads and bridges and other landmarks that each of those cities uh, have to offer. And, of course, we'll be offering up our predictions uh, for the game itself. I'll be joined over the course of this show by a couple of mystery guests that you may or may not have heard from if uh, if you've watched this podcast over the last year or so. And I'll be very eager to get their thoughts on those two cities, and also what their thoughts are on the game itself. Uh, Just to give you a little bit of an introduction, Super Bowl 56 will be played on Sunday, February 13th in SoFi Stadium in Inglewood, California. Um, For the second year in a row, one of the two contesting teams will be playing in their home stadium. The Rams play their games at SoFi, Uh, Last year, you may recall that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers played in their home stadium down when the game was in Tampa last year. Uh, So it's a little bit of an unusual occurrence. It had never happened before until last year, and now it's happened for the second year in a row. Um, The Rams are the champions of the NFC. They are making their their first uh, Super Bowl appearance since 2019 when they lost Super Bowl 53 out in Atlanta. The Bengals have not been in the Super Bowl since 1988. Uh, This is their third trip to the big game overall. They are seeking their first championship. In fact, the two contestants in this game are seeking their first championship in their current city. Uh, The Bengals have never won a championship. The Rams have a Super Bowl title to their credit, but it was when they were out in St. Louis uh, they have never won a Super Bowl as the L.A. Rams, back whether back in the 80s or uh, the current iteration of the Rams. So somebody is going to end a very long drought um, by the end of this game with their first championship. And um, really looking forward to this game. It's an interesting matchup on a variety of levels. Uh, if you like football, this is, this is probably going to be the kind of game that you're really going to enjoy. Um... But we're not exactly here to talk about football and X's and O's and all that other stuff. We're here to talk about roads. So we will start our coverage after this short break. We'll dive right into Cincinnati with our first mystery guest. And we'll see where the evening takes us. After that, after we do Cincinnati, we'll talk about Los Angeles in depth. I'll have some final thoughts on the game myself. And that's basically going to cover this show's proceedings. So sit back and relax. I hope you enjoy. And we'll get it all rolling right after this on the Gribble Nation Roadcast. Stay tuned. (laughs) 
Okay. We're back here on the official Super Bowl preview show here on the Gribble Nation Roadcast, and I'm very pleased at this time to introduce my first mystery guest of the evening who's going to help uh, profile the city of Cincinnati, Ohio for us. So good evening, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Um, boy, your voice sounds awfully familiar. I know I've heard it somewhere before. Yeah, I'm sure you have. Yeah, maybe somewhere on a podcast somewhere about roads. Yeah. <laughs> I'd say so. <laughs> well, hi, Doug. It's nice to hear from you. Uh, how's everything uh, going in your neck of the woods? Uh, good. It's, uh, well, we're getting ready for, uh, basically the heavens to ice over uh, again. <laughs> yeah, same thing here. You know, the good thing I get to work from home tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so that, that's that's a good thing. I want to talk to you about Cincinnati because I've been to Cincinnati once. It was about five years ago, but it's always a city that I've wanted to explore. And when I was there a few years ago, it certainly lived up to my expectations for it. I think it's a really interesting place. Um Cincinnati is, of course, in southwestern Ohio. It's right at the confluence of Ohio, Kentucky, and Indiana. Um, the city itself has a population of about 300,000. The metro area around Hamilton County, Ohio, is about 2 million. Um, what strikes you, Doug, about Cincinnati as a whole, as a city? Well, there are a few things from my, uh, as a city as a whole. Basically, the geography of you know, basically, I've been through Cincinnati a couple times myself, and of course, you know, it sits along right along the Ohio River, and basically, it's in a hilly area. It reminds me a bit of Pittsburgh, in a sense. Uh, but you know, with that, you know, of course, it leads to a lot of great urban geography and stunning views, and also uh, you get a lot of spectacular, dense urban neighborhoods with wonderful architecture. Uh, Cincinnati is you know, known as the Queen City of the Midwest uh, because it was a large city even in the 1830s. You know, basically, there's a lot of riverboats that went through Cincinnati. And uh, you can see in the architecture where there's a lot of very unique 19th century architecture that's it's, uh, not, it's different than what you'd find in a typical Midwest city. Uh, but, of course, it also has a lot of modern architecture as well. Uh, basically, the University of Cincinnati... Um, has buildings from some of the world's top architects, including people like Michael Graves. And then, uh, but when you go around Cincinnati, you'll also find like a lot of like patchwork quilt of towns. Basically, it's not built like a lot of the Midwestern cities you might be familiar with, like Chicago or Detroit or even up the road in Columbus, Ohio. But you have like the, the city, and then around it, you have more of a patchwork quilt of uh, suburbs. Um, and they also have their own unique character and identity. Uh, but Cincinnati also has a lot of cultural institutions uh, because it was a big city early on. Um, a lot there's a lot of um, endowments. Basically, you'll find the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra and the Cincinnati Children's Hospital and the um, Cincinnati Art uh, Museum has over six thousand years of works uh, on display. Uh, but you also find more modern things, too, like the American Sign Museum, which is the largest 
uh, public uh, museum dedicated to signs of the United States. Um, you'll find the Over the Rhine District, which is a neighborhood in Cincinnati, and the Finley Market, which has a lot of food and craft uh, vendors. Uh, you'll also find a lot of uh, corporations there, like you'll find Procter & Gamble, they're based in Cincinnati. Uh, so is Kroger, which is one of the largest uh, supermarket uh, chains in the in the country. Um, but then again, you know, you'll also find with that history, with German, uh, basically with Cincinnati, there's a lot of uh, German uh, immigration that went into Cincinnati early on. So you'll find a lot of, you know, basically a lot of German culture and uh, really a kind of a old world German attitude in Cincinnati. Uh, but with the geography and everything else, uh, Cincinnati, you know, really didn't get to develop like some of the other cities in the Midwest, like, you know, your Chicago or St. Louis. Uh, so it's not really a big rail hub, but, you know, there's a lot of things that is interesting, you know, in Cincinnati. Yeah, it, it didn't develop as a rail hub, but it certainly developed as a river hub uh, on the it Ohio did, River. It did, yes. Um, it was a very strategic place, too, especially during the Civil War. Um as you may know, you know, Ohio and Kentucky were border states between Union and Confederacy, and it was crucial for the Union cause that the Ohio River be kept open. And so Cincinnati was one of those significant, you know, outpost communities, cities along the Ohio River where you saw quite a significant Union Army presence throughout the war. Um, yes. Also, the speaking of the Civil War, the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center is on the riverfront in Cincinnati. And I would like to say before I forget that I would be remiss if I did not mention that Cincinnati is the birthplace of our favorite U.S. president of all time, William Howard Taft. Oh, yes. Uh, did you know the uh, Tafts, uh, they actually, uh, you, know, they're, you know, they have a lot of Ohio political history. I think there was... Um, Bob Taft was a senator, but they actually uh, came to Ohio from uh, Brattleboro, Vermont. Well, that family. You, well, that appeals to you, doesn't it, Mister? It does. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, let's talk some roads, shall we? Um, so, just to give you a little bit of an overview, there are three mainline interstates that all converge in Southwest Ohio. And the Cincy metro area, you have 71, which runs more of a southwest to northeasterly course between Louisville and Columbus and Cleveland. You have 75, which runs more or less north to south between Toledo, Cincinnati, and Lexington, Kentucky. And then 74 comes in from the west out by Indianapolis and has its eastern terminus on the north side of Cincinnati. Um I would also like to mention that the longest interstate highway beltway in the United States is located encircling Cincinnati, Interstate 275, which is about 84 miles long. I believe it's about a half a mile longer than the 435 loop in Kansas City. Um, so it's marginally longer than that one, and that's how it gets the title of longest interstate beltway. Um, it's also one of the few auxiliary interstates on the whole system nationwide that passes through three states as it clips the far eastern corner of Indiana as it passes between uh, northern Kentucky and southwest Ohio. And I believe that the other one is uh, I-295 uh, in the uh, Philadelphia and Wilmington and South Jersey areas. 
Yes, and as we know, that's a very recent addition to that category. It was not planned that yes. way. Um, what what do you think about the freeways in Cincy? I, I really there's there are a few drives in Cincy that I really like. There's the section along the riverfront of uh, seventy one as you come into uh, downtown. There's a neat tunnel that passes under Lytle Park. Right. Um, and again, you were mentioning before the terrain. The, the terrain plays a big factor here um, on both sides of the Ohio River. You have a few spots in Cincy where you have great views of downtown. So coming in from the south on 71, uh, which is, I believe, what they call the cut in the hill, where you go down yes. a steep slope into Covington before you jump across the Ohio River. That's probably the single most iconic spot in the Cincinnati freeway system. At least it's the single best view, in my opinion. Right, but with that, it's also um, that cut in the hill. It's nicknamed Death Hill because it has a high number of automobile accidents. And actually, that cut in the hill in 2006, um, for instance, that's the year that I have the data from, it averaged over seven times more accidents uh, when compared to similar roadways in Kentucky. And a part of that is because of the steep grade down into the Ohio River. It's about four miles long. And then basically um, there's a number of factors that go into it as, you know, I-75 leads towards the uh, Brent Spence Bridge. Yeah, I think one of the motivations for getting I-471 completed was they wanted a highway that could bypass the cut in the hill because they realized right. very early on just how dangerous a stretch of road that was. And unfortunately, there's not a whole lot that you can do engineering-wise to improve it. At least, you know, there isn't really a good way to shallow out the grades through there. Uh, so they're kind of stuck with what they have. It's You can tell it's very early interstate highway planning. You know, it's certainly if they were designing that road today, they would never have engineered it the way that they did. But... Um, you know, they're kind of stuck with what they have. And fortunately for northern Kentucky, there is that second highway, 471, which links in to Cincinnati's downtown area also. But um, there are a few other drives in Cincy that I really like. Um, I-71 coming from the north is also an interesting experience. Um, yeah. Cause... That, also, that also involves a hill, by the way, but I don't think that's nearly as bad as the one in Kentucky. No, it's not. Of course, the thing is, let's say if you're coming on I-71 from Columbus, it's, you know, basically it's flat and flat and flat till you get to uh, 275. Then it starts getting interesting as you start getting into the hills around uh, Cincinnati. Yeah, so a couple of other interesting drives that I really like off the interstate system. You have what they call the Norwood Lateral, which is an east-west expressway through the northern suburb of Norwood. It's pretty much a short connector between Interstates 71 and 75 on the north side of town. Those two interstates kind of parallel each other a couple miles apart for a few miles north out of downtown Cincy. And the Norwood Lateral, which is an Ohio State route, I believe it's Route 562, if I... It is, yes. Yeah. Um, That's another early, you know, post-war expressway that was planned and built in a hurry. I believe it was all built in the late 50s. But that's, you know, one of the things that I really enjoy is getting to see the old substandard 
freeways while they're still around before they all get, you know, either demolished or they all get upgraded so they're unrecognizable. The Norwood Lateral is a fun drive because of uh, just how antiquated it is. And another one that I really like is what's called the 6th Street Expressway. Uh, this is... US Part of 50. US 50, I believe. Yeah, it's US 50 as you head west out of town. Um, you go across the Mill Creek Valley. Uh, there's a lot of railroad yards in that area. You got, a, you got some really nice views of downtown, especially if you're coming from the west, heading eastbound. That's another nice view of the city center there. Um, US 50, of course, continues west along the river for quite a distance. But uh, I like that expressway, too. That's a nice... Short but yeah. sweet highway that, again, has some pretty nice views. And, of course, it's off the interstate system, so it doesn't necessarily get the attention it deserves. But right. it's certainly the, worth uh, checking out. The, the uh, Waldvogel Viaduct goes along there, too. Yeah, there, there are quite a few of those long freeway viaduct things in Cincy also. Um, especially in that same Mill Creek area west of downtown um the one that i think gets the most attention is the western hills viaduct which is a bi-level structure it has an upper level of roadway and it has a lower level of roadway too um and it more or less connects i-75 with the uh the fairmount section of west cincinnati across on the other side of mill creek valley this is a structure that was built, I believe, in the 20s or 30s, something like that. Um, it's a beautiful, ornate structure. It's made all of reinforced concrete at a time when America was really pumping out the reinforced concrete viaduct-like structures, you know, both for vehicle traffic and for railroad traffic. Um, I know that the, the city of Cincinnati owns it and maintains it. It is not property of Ohio DOT. And right now, the city of Cincinnati is trying to figure out how they're going to either significantly rehabilitate the thing or replace it outright. I hope they don't choose the latter, because this is a really beautiful structure. But, right. um, yeah, they got they got their hands full with that one, unfortunately. But go and see that one before, you know, you never know. The next time, you, next time you're in Cincy, it might not be there anymore. It's one of those kinds of deals. And then you have some other uh, roads around Cincinnati. Um, the uh, Ronald Reagan Cross Country, uh, sorry, Ross, Ronald Reagan Cross Cross County Highway, which is Ohio uh, Route 126. It was used to be known as just uh, Cross County uh, Highway, and it, it's an east-west uh, freeway in Hamilton County, uh, you know, north of Cincinnati. And it was uh, built in a number of stages between 1958 and 1997. Uh, basically, it um, was supposed to be a um, connector from I-75 to the Blue Ash Airport initially, which that was originally um, planned to become Cincinnati's main metropolitan uh, airport. Of course, the airport is in the Cincinnati's airport is in Kentucky. Um, but initially, they were going to have the uh, Blue Ash Airport be the big airport around Cincinnati. Um, and then it eventually, uh, the highway eventually blossomed where it was going to connect over to I-275. 
Um, don't think it uh, made it that far. It made it just to I-71, um, but it's still you know a major road to the north part of uh, the Cincinnati metro area. And of course, um, another uh, thing that I wanted to point out is you know since Cincinnati Bengals are going to the Super Bowl. If you take US 50, as we had mentioned, east out to Athens, Ohio, that's you know where jo- uh, quarterback Joe Burrow is from. Yes, the Southeast Ohio kid, drafted number one overall by the Bengals. Yeah, and here he is before very long in the Super Bowl with that team. Yeah. So, Athens, I know Athens because it's also the home of Ohio University, um, which is a significant rival in the MAC conference for my alma mater, the University of Buffalo. So I've gone to many, this is probably like 10 or 12 years ago, but I've gone to many uh, Buffalo, Ohio U athletic events over the years. My last one was probably eight or 10 years ago now, but um, we didn't like those people from Southeast Ohio because they always brought their marching band. Like the full like hundred and fifty member band with them on the road, yeah, and they would fill up like two sections of the stadium, and they'd be freaking louder than we were. So it felt like an Ohio home game every time that they were in town. Um, so that's kind of yeah, kind of what I think of when I think of uh, Southeast Ohio and uh, Joe Burrow and all that stuff. I think, yeah. good God, that marching band. Yeah, my alma mater didn't even didn't even have a football team. Over yeah. in Oswego. Yeah. <laughs> well. We have hockey. Yeah, there you go. You made up for it that way. Yeah. But US 50 east of Cincy, I, I believe, doesn't that become an ADHS corridor out that way? Uh, not quite. It's uh, Ohio Route 32. Oh, that's... And that's, that's, okay. that's um, I think that's... Um, I, and I think that eventually goes over to part of Corridor D. Yeah, Corridor D is the one I'm thinking of. And yeah. Of course, in West Virginia, US 50 is uh, Corridor D. So Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think it generally runs from Cincinnati out to Parkersburg. Yes. Where it skips over the river and then heads east to Clarksburg on US 50. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Um, And then we reach I-275, which... As I mentioned at the start, this was this is an unusual highway in that it it's an auxiliary interstate that passes through three different states. Um, as we mentioned, also it is the longest interstate highway beltway. It is not the longest continuous circumferential highway in the U.S. It is beaten out by the Sam Houston Tollway, which encircles Houston, Texas. That road is only a few miles longer than 275 is, so it doesn't have right. it beat by a lot. Yeah, two seventy five um, is eighty four miles long. Yeah, so when you when you clinch it, you you realize just how long it is because you feel like you're on it forever. You know, especially um, out in the west of the metro. Like if you're taking it clockwise, for instance, and you go past Covington and you go past the airport, and you you very quickly go into rural middle of nowhere on this road. Yeah. And then you cross the Ohio River in a very handsome-looking bridge, and, and you're in Indiana for a couple of miles, and then you turn back into Ohio. But that whole stretch there is in complete you know, countryside, and you're not really aware that you're in a major metro area even 
for quite a while there. Um, so you have stretches like that on 275, and then you also have stretches like in the north side of the metro, like up by um, Springdale, Pleasant Run, Sharonville, up that way, between 71, 75, US 127, up that way. That's where the real suburban sprawl of Hamilton County and Metro Cincinnati comes into play. And when you're traveling that stretch, you've, you're like, all right, I'm definitely in a metro area that's over 2 million people. So, yeah. and, and then, you, of course, you have everything in between those two extremes along the stretch of, along the length of 275. So it's a very interesting uh, drive as a whole. Um, of course, it crosses the Ohio River twice. Um, so you have two very interesting uh, bridges there that I'm sure we'll talk about more in a spec in a moment here. But um, I would say as a beltway, it's it's certainly a diverse highway. You know the differences between suburban and rural. Um, they are very extreme in some cases. Oh yeah. Yep, so yeah. that is you know, 275, another couple things about that. It's just the locals in Cincinnati, they just call it 275 or the Loop. Um, although it's officially known as the Donald H. Rolfe Circle Freeway in Ohio, and in Kentucky it's known as the Ronald Reagan Highway. Well, they might be calling it the Joe Burrow Highway before too long, if this yeah. keeps up. Yeah. <laughs> um, what do you say we talk about some bridges real quick? Yes, and uh, Cincinnati has uh, quite a few uh, interesting bridges to talk about. Yeah, so it just sticking with the Ohio River for a minute, I mentioned a minute ago that 275 crosses the Ohio River twice. At the west end of the metro, you have the, uh, the Carroll Lee Cropper Bridge, and east of town, you have the Combs Hell Bridge, which is a the latter of these two is a uh, a dual span bridge over the river. Um, both are very interesting bridges. You know, they're they're steel truss bridges. You know, built very much in the style of a lot of the bridges you would see on the Ohio River. These big metal monsters. Yes. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And then you get into Cincinnati proper, and you have. Um, you have a couple bridges I really like. One of them is the bridge on I-471, which is the Daniel Carter Beard Bridge. Uh, this is another dual-span bridge. It's a dual-span arch, and the arches are painted gold. And over the years, it, this bridge has been finally nicknamed as the Big Mac Bridge uh, as a reference to uh, McDonald's, you know, the golden arches, you know. Um so uh, during the 1980s, uh, McDonald's actually considered opening up a floating restaurant at the base of the bridge. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That would have been interesting. But the uh, Daniel uh, Carter Beard Bridge, uh, you know, Daniel Carter Beard, he was actually the uh, founder of the Boy Scouts of America. Yeah, and he was from either Ohio or Kentucky originally, I think. I think that's the the connection there too isn't it i think he's uh, i forget exactly I where he's from but i think that sounds familiar um yeah he was born in cincinnati uh, okay, and well. he died in and he died in suffer new york oh all right well hey that's that's not far yeah. from us is it no it's not <laughs> um other bridges across the ohio downtown cincinnati you have um 
an interesting pedestrian-only bridge that was built as a railroad bridge back in the 1870s or 18, well... 1872. 1872, yeah. It's officially known as the Newport South Bank Bridge, but most people call it the Purple People Bridge. And the story behind that one is it was being restored for pedestrian use. It had closed to railroad traffic many years prior. And instead of demolishing it, the, the local residents wanted it reopened as a pedestrian bridge. So as they were getting ready to reopen it, they were picking a color to repaint the structure. And the local people voted overwhelmingly in favor of purple. And which is an odd choice for a bridge. You don't see many bridges painted purple, you know, around the world. Right. Um, and so the name basically stuck. You know, people started calling it the Purple People Bridge as a result of that. And um, it's been known as that more or less ever since. It, it reopened in. Uh, I think it reopened in 2000, when did it reopen? 2001, uh, looks like it was uh, opened in, uh, well, they closed it in 2001, and then they actually opened it up around 2006. Mm -hmm. uh, for a while, it was actually, uh, it actually allowed you to cross the bridge, kind of like um, the Sydney Harbor Bridge, where you kind of like were able to like, climb the bridge. Yes, they would give you a safety harness, and you they would walk you up and along the top cord of the truss. Yeah, right. Which uh, that's an interesting uh, experience. I guess they stopped doing that. Yeah, um, they don't. They only lasted a couple of years. It looks like. Yeah. Well, as someone who has had experience doing that in the past, I would say that it's a lot of fun, and uh, that's something that I would definitely sign up to do in a second. Right. Um, but yeah, so it it remains open today as a pedestrian bridge, and, it, and they did a really good job with the restoration overall. Um, the purple color certainly makes it a lot more memorable too. Um, but all the original, um, or at least as much of the original structure as they could, is still in place. You know, the original builders' plaques are still on it. Um, so it is it is a really good job by the city to restore a bridge that significant um, and keep it alive for at least another few generations. Um, I won't say too much about the Taylor Southgate Bridge, um, the Clayway Bailey Bridge. You know, these are a couple of other big metal monster bridges across the river that uh, they're there. You know, they serve their purpose. Um, the Southgate Bridge is a newer bridge. That one replaced another old metal monster. Um, the Southgate Bridge, the current iteration of that opened in the 90s. But the older iteration of that goes back over 100 years. And, um, so there's two other ones that I want to talk about with you. Um, the Roebling Suspension Bridge, which I know is one of the great American engineering achievements of the 19th century... Um, what can you tell us about that bridge real quick? Okay, it, it opened in 1866, and at the time was the longest suspension bridge at the, in the world, uh, with a uh, main span of 1,057 uh, feet, which was actually later overtaken by another uh, bridge of uh, John A. Roebling's, the uh, Brooklyn Bridge. Um, so basically it was something at a time where, you know, basically, you know, there was a lot of... Um, Obviously, a lot of river traffic going, you know, up and down and across the Ohio River, uh, and 
once the middle of the 19th century came around, um, there was a need for a bridge over the Ohio River um, because they felt that the uh, river was getting congested with steamboats, which is probably uh, true because you know Cincinnati was a big uh, river port city. Um, so uh, the uh, Rolling Suspension Bridge actually took a number of years to build. Uh, they actually started building it before the Civil War, uh, basically where they were you know, basically putting in the foundations. It uh, looks like they were started the excavation and pouring the foundation in 1856 and 1857. But of course, then there was a financial panic in 1857, so they halted the work. And then they restarted again in 1858. Um, then the president of the bridge company died. Um, so they halted work for uh, in 1859 and 1860. Um, then the Civil War happened. So they started doing some work during the Civil War, but they had a pontoon bridge that was built to span the Ohio River, basically for movement of... Uh, troops uh, bet uh, between Ohio and Kentucky. Uh, but really starting in 1863 and 1864, that's when they started working on the, uh, you know, really building the, the Roebling Bridge in Cincinnati. And then it finally opened, you know, t at the end of 1866 to pedestrians. And then it opened to additional traffic in 1867 at the time uh there was a toll on the bridge a driver of a horse and buggy uh, was charged a toll of 15 cents and if it was three horses in a carriage it was 25 cents and if you were a mere pedestrian you were charged uh one single cent to cross the bridge one cent yes you know the, i really like the story of the roebling bridge um because of how it sort of crossfades into civil war history too um the bridge as we as you know was kind of stopped and started construction over a few years and at the start of the civil war they stopped construction out of fear of confederate sabotage or confederate invasion of northern kentucky once that threat passed in 1863, I think there was a lot of motivation at the federal level, uh, really pushed by Abraham Lincoln, uh, to get construction of the bridge restarted as a great public works project for the Union war effort. Um, whether it was ever going to see use for war traffic or not, I think was secondary. It was one of those morale-boosting projects that he really wanted to push. Um, and I've just been watching the Ken Burns Civil War documentary again this past week. And I had forgotten that in the first, you know, basically most of the war, um, construction of the Capitol Dome, you know, that dome on the, on the National Capitol there in D.C.? Yes. That went on throughout the war. Um, it was that Lincoln insisted that construction of that continue. Uh, throughout the war and um, so there were several of these projects nationwide that took place uh, during the Civil War really to kind of keep uh, keep the workers going keep morale up keep all that stuff going and uh, I, I think the Roebling Bridge is another example of that 
And of course, as an epilogue to the Roebling Bridge discussion after the war ends, uh, Colonel Washington Roebling, who served in the, the Union Army and was in places like uh, Gettysburg and Appomattox Courthouse, um, goes on to Cincinnati to help his father John finish the bridge at Cincinnati and goes on to um, basically see out his father's design in Brooklyn. One of the great Civil War veteran stories you'll ever read about. Oh, yeah. So that's and the story then... on that. And then the other bridge I want to mention here real quick is the Brent Spence Bridge, um, Interstate 71 and 75, opened just a couple days after President Kennedy was assassinated in 1963. Um, there was a brief movement to have this bridge named for Kennedy, but officials in Kentucky instead opted to name the new I-65 bridge in Louisville after him because those two bridges were built more or less around the same time and opened around the same time. Um, this is a bi-level bridge. Um, northbound traffic crosses on the lower level, southbound on the upper level. Um, and over the years you have heard a lot of talk about possibly expanding this bridge or replacing it outright. It is a real significant traffic choke point along Interstate 75 between Ohio and the Mid-South. And the last I checked, um, there continues to be political squabbling over securing funding for this uh, hypothetical replacement project. So who the heck knows when we're going to see construction on a uh, Brent Spence expansion project. Meanwhile, the bridge is, uh, you know, Falling apart little by little. Um, I know that, you know, basically, I think it was a couple of years ago, there was a, basically there was an accident that caused a fire that um, caused the bridge to be closed for about a month. And then uh, about a decade ago, there was actually uh, chunks of concrete uh, that basically that were from the bridge that fell onto a vehicle. Yeah, so... It's one of many major bridges in America that are in bad shape and need a lot of work. And, right. you know, we just have heard about a bridge collapse in Pittsburgh in the news uh, very recently. So, you know, this is a very real issue for engineers and the traveling public as well. And, um, you know, we've gotten ourselves in a little bit of a pickle here, especially with these big bridges that are coming uh, to the end of their lifespans and need need replacements. So the Brent Spence is one that's certainly worth uh, keeping an eye on in the years ahead. You know, that's that's probably the next significant urban mega project uh, in the Midwest and the Ohio Valley. So whenever they decide to get going on that one, that's going to be one to watch for sure. Right. And the thing is with uh, the with the Ohio River, most of the river i think is up to like the low uh tide mark or what have you is on is in kentucky so i think most of the funding would have to at least on a state level would be coming from kentucky yeah i don't i that would probably have to be negotiated because i know that when they did a lot of the construction work in louisville a few years ago with expanding the bridges down there on the ohio river there was some sort of agreement that was made between Kentucky and Indiana as far as who would, you know, cover the costs for what. And it was kind of one of those things where 
you know, they had to do a little bit of trading off of funds and whatnot. So that's something that could be negotiated between state legislatures. Or maybe they'll just create a new tolling agency of some kind and they'll charge a zillion dollar toll to cross the bridge. Who knows? Right. But um, that's about it for Cincinnati, right, Doug? I mean, I think we covered everything. At least we covered all the essentials, right? Right. I did want to point out just a uh, couple of other things with the Benz, uh, with the Brent Spence Bridge in popular culture. Yeah, go ahead. Um, basically, there was a uh, soap opera that ran mostly during the uh, late 60s and the 1970s called The Edge of Night, where a uh, basically the downtown uh, Cincinnati skyline, using the approach from the Brent Spence Bridge, was basically like featured i think it was like in the uh the title credits or what have you and then there was a bridge uh, similar to the brent uh, spence bridge that appears in need for speed most wanted uh which i think is a uh, a movie or what have you uh but there was a toll plaza added (laughs) yeah i don't think there was ever a toll plaza on that bridge was there? no i don't believe that i don't believe tolls were ever uh collected on that bridge yeah all right. Well, here's the most important question as we wrap this segment up for you. Um, Rams, Bengals, who do you like? I actually uh, think uh, I'm going to go for the Bengals. I know they're playing in the Rams' house, but I really think it. the Bengals have that momentum. Well, you know what? Cincinnati, you can say whatever you want about them, but when they win against the top two seeds in the conference on the road in consecutive weeks, they absolutely deserve to be in the game. And in a Super Bowl environment, when it's 60 minutes um, between you and the other guys, literally anything can happen. So, yeah, I I can certainly see Cincinnati winning this game. Absolutely. And Joe Burrow knows championships. Well, he's got experience with that, too, from uh, his days at uh, good old Louisiana State, doesn't he? Right. Yeah. Well, Doug, this was great. Uh, Thanks for popping on for a few minutes, young man. All right. Well, I'm actually older than you, but... Well, well, (laughs) I like to think that you're a little younger. That's okay. Right on. (laughs) Uh, Thank you for helping me out with Cincinnati. This was a lot of fun. It was. Yeah, so, uh, all right, be good, and uh, we'll be in touch. I'll catch you next time. All righty. And we'll be back after this voice break with a few words about Los Angeles with mystery guest number two. It's all coming up here on the Super Bowl Preview Show. Stick around. back here on the uh, special Gribble Nation Roadcast uh, Super Bowl preview show. You just heard Doug uh, talking at length about Cincinnati, Ohio with me and to help break down Los Angeles, California and everything that area has to offer, we have our second mystery guest of the program. Um, and he, He's on the line right now. Let me pull him up here. Uh, yes, uh, good morning, sir. How are you? I'm doing good. 
Should I announce who the mystery is, or is it completely obvious well, you know, to everyone you, who listens to this broadcast? Well, you know, you sound very familiar, too, just like the first guy that we had. Yeah, yeah, uh, I'm definitely not Tom Fear from Fresno. <laughs> definitely not. How are you, man? How's it going? Uh, pretty good. Uh, you know, sitting around... Waiting for this game to go down. Waiting to see if my wife will end up getting me this promised Los Angeles Lions shirt. She seems to think it's pretty hilarious that our quarterback has gone to the Super Bowl in the first year with the Rams. <laughs> uh, it no, kind of is. Right. So a little bit of background about you. You are a you're from Michigan. Yes. Originally. And you're yes. a Detroit sports fan. Correct. And Matthew Stafford, who is the quarterback of the Lions now, was with the or sorry, he's with the Rams now. He was with the Lions for what, the first ten years of his career? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much a career's worth and um it was really good. Like uh, just really, really good solid quarterback and it, hate to say it, but the Lions were holding him back. Uh it's kind of playing out that way. The guy had a forty touchdown year. They're they're in the you know they're already in the Super Bowl, so it's like. <laughs> but I'm not shocked. I mean, this is kind of like gone back for years and years and years of the Lions. Like they're just completely inept. The other thing that I want to mention about the Rams before we dive into L.A. itself is that I believe your significant other has ties to Rams fandom. She is a Rams fan. Uh, the whole how's... her whole family are Rams fans, which I find kind of interesting because they all were around when they moved to St. Louis, uh, but stayed Rams fans. And I guess that's a common thing around here. Like uh, I, I remember, like my grandpa when uh, the, the Colts left Baltimore, like he didn't even have an NFL team after that, and he refused to follow them in Indianapolis. So it's just such a California thing to me because like you kind of notice a similar thing with the the Raiders I, I don't I don't get it this seems kind of strange but that's their team yeah it seems like the Raiders still have a huge following in LA yes isn't that right yeah even in the Bay Area even where I live now um I, and they kind of like think because most people kind of got an attachment to Las Vegas but I think I thought the the Rams being in St. Louis and maintaining a fan base was kind of odd mm-hmm yeah. Well, Los Angeles is an enormous metro area, quite the opposite kind of metro to Cincinnati in a lot of ways. You know, L.A. is the glitz and the glamour of Hollywood and Santa Monica, and Cincinnati is blue-collar, very rough. It's Ohio, right? Yeah. Um, so, in a way, you couldn't have two more different opposing metro areas to play this game um la is home to four million people in la proper i believe there are two different metro areas in the basin itself that yes combined to have about 20 million people yeah um, the inland empire would be the other one and really if you're on the ground you're not even going to know the difference than it just being suburban los angeles yeah, I just kind of feel like the whole basin itself is one giant, you know, blob of, you know, L.A. metro. I mean, really, from Santa Monica out to San Bernardino and as far south as San Clemente and Temecula. Yeah, I all... would I would argue that's even kind of infilling between San Diego and Temecula now, or even 
if you want to kind of get a fringe definition of it, if you follow 101, and it goes all the way out to Ventura. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot that we could talk about as far as L.A. roads and bridges and whatnot, but you're the Californian, and I suspect that you have a few things that you want to cover right off the bat, so I'm going to give you the floor. Well, as far as roads in uh, L.A., I mean, I think most people are going to kind of associate the city with freeways, uh, and probably rightly so. Uh, like, even in some of the museums, like the Peter Muse- Museum, they have a feature for freeways. They call it the city of freeways. So you have the infamous ones like I-405, uh, the Royal Seco Parkway, the Hollywood Freeway. Uh, I think everyone knows about. I, I kind of try to like to get into the more obscure stuff. I mean, like I really love the Arroyo Seco Parkway. Like I think that's just a, a classic, classic early freeway, like one of the originals. Uh, but I kind of like some of the more other stuff that people don't tend to really enjoy, like the Harbor Freeway. Uh, it's very industrial looking on the southern end, but like you get some awesome views of downtown, uh, the San Gabriel Mountains. Like when the weather's clear. I really like the Hollywood Freeway. It's another older design, uh, kind of archaic, um, but it's kind of interesting because you got a lot of those Art Deco uh, designs, like uh, the bridge that goes over with Carrie Mulholland Drive over. Uh, you got a lot of interesting older stuff, um, like notable bridges. I, I, I think basically the Colorado Street Bridge is going to be the most prominent because they carried US 66 and US 99. It, and that's fun fact, most people don't know that US-99 was on that bridge for a little while, too. Uh, but you got a lot of classic roads in the area, like uh, the Angeles Crest Highway, California, too. Um, I got my own favorites, like Topanga Canyon, California State Route 27, Decker Canyon, that's California State Route 23. You got some of the weird stories, like, you know, California State Route 39 in the not abandoned but not maintained portion and really you could just kind of keep going on and on forever and even in the fringe areas like around san bernardino you got the rim of the world highway with california state route 18 so it's like anywhere you go if you're in the roads uh the los angeles area is really going to be something that you could find pretty much anything is going to capture your interest yeah i've been through la once before it was about about two years ago now, um, in a world strangely pre-COVID, um, <laughs> and I, I didn't spend a whole lot of time in LA because, for one thing, I didn't expect to be there on this trip. But I had an extra day and a half or so, so I, I did some driving around LA, and I, I drove stuff like the 405 and the 5 through town, and another freeway I really liked was the 605 especially the northern end of it where you have a very that's another very industrial looking highway and you've got the San Gabriel mountain range right in front of you at the end there um, so I really like that one I I'm with you I really like the Arroyo Seco Parkway myself um, the northbound approach on the Harbor Freeway into downtown LA is one of my favorite urban approaches anywhere yeah, that's just amazing looking, and just the views you get in downtown, uh, heading to the the interchange with uh, 101, uh, that's called the four-level interchange, it's just such a classic, just a classic view. Classic early interstate era, right? Yes, very, yeah. very early. There's still so much early infrastructure, I mean, as far as the interstate system is concerned, in L.A. and and the metro in general. And I know that a lot of people, when they talk about freeways, it usually doesn't take very long for people to start talking about button copy signs. 
Yes. And, yeah. <laughs> and I know that. Here. Yeah, I know that L.A. is still a gold mine for a lot of that stuff. Uh, and, and what's interesting is, like, you even have a lot of the older, like, 1990s era button copy. Uh, like, when we went and picked up uh, my father-in-law at LAX really recently, I went took a detour out to the Marina Freeway, which is California State Route 90. And, like, the whole thing is just, like, 20-year-old button copy signs. Mm. Like, even they've still got some of the newer ones. Uh, I, I, I think it was, like, around 99 is when Caltrans dropped that finally. Yeah, that that would have been around the time that a state like New Jersey got rid of it. And so, it, like, in Jersey, you can see a lot of button copy that's 25, 30 years old still. Um, yeah, it, still it looks good when it's newer, but I can I can see why people complain when it's been up since 1964. Yeah, do some of those signs go back that far? Sometimes. Uh, they're getting pretty rare now. Uh, back in 2017, we had a lot of heavy rains uh, in California in general, and that's within uh, the state passed what was called SB1. Uh, one of the big hooks to SB1, besides the road repairs, was replacement of signage. Um, so a lot of the smaller signs, gantries, were replaced uh, with, with modern vinyl or retroreflective stuff. Um, so like kind of the areas where you're going to see a lot of the older button copy signs would be like the Bay Area, but not so much L.A. anymore. I mean, they're there, but you got to look for them now, whereas they were really abundant before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'm just really fascinated by all the old you know, the antique stuff that's still around in the L.A. area. It's almost like driving through a museum. So yeah, if, if you, well, speaking if you of that, that's right. actually how I got my uh, i5 button copy shield was. It was, uh, they were pulling down a gantry, Caltrans, um, I, I want to say it was around San Juan Capistrano, and I guess one of the Caltrans workers carved out like a skill saw or something, um, the shield, and it's actually still attached to the guide sign on the back. Mm-hmm. It's only missing half of one reflector, so I paid like seventy bucks for it. Like it just like oh, wow. probably probably more than I would normally pay for a sign. But like I'm thinking, like if I throw this thing on eBay, like people are gonna like ask for five hundred dollars. Not that you would get that, but like that would probably be like the going rate for a California button copy sign these days. Oh yeah, something that antique, yeah. But like you know, the the signage is really interesting in that part of California. Um, the old style design of the freeways and the parkways are, to me, like stepping back in time. Um, and yet it all seems to absolutely, uh, work beautifully to some extent. I know the traffic is absolutely horrendous there, but I mean, there's nothing you can really do about that, but. um, Yeah, it's just a function of just, there's just so many people. Like, I don't think there's really any good solution do it even if they built the whole complete freeway network like they plan it's pretty close honestly but like even that wouldn't help there's just too many bodies in one place yeah that's the crazy thing too is that you look at the map of la and the metro and you see all these lines with freeways on them and you you go back and you realize that yeah, there was there were several more freeways they could have built in that area that never saw the light of day or extensions of freeways or you know connections to other freeways that weren't fully completed and you know it 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 really it's really mind-boggling when you look at the map you know to see what what they could have also added to the system that they never got around to yeah now it's kind of interesting because i think like the uh division of highways which was caltrans predecessor 
Uh, they were criticized heavily in the late 60s and 70s for like grabbing up land and right-of-ways and really honestly trying to make every state highway in the bigger cities freeways. But like you look at their planning projections on population growth, they were like right on the money. And I'm not saying that like every freeway had merit, like a, like the Malibu Canyon Freeway, which would have been part of California State Route 64. Like, yeah, that stuff's kind of questionable, but a lot of them were like spot on with growth patterns. Yeah, they kind of knew what the metro area was going to be before the people who were living there knew, right? Yep. Um, let's talk interchanges for a minute because there's <laughs> a really. I mean, there's a lot of those huge stack junctions, you know, across the metro area. But I think the one that people talk about the most is the, I think it's the 105 and the 110. Yes. South of, south of L.A. Is that, does that sound right? Yeah, that's uh, the really, really tall one. I believe it's, what is it, like four levels, I think? It might be five. Yeah. Five or six, even. I don't know. It's, it's huge. Yeah, but it's, it's it's a beast, and I th- I'm not sure if that was the one that was in the scene in Speed. I forget what part of 105 that was on. Mm. But yeah, it's just I tried to when they did the blog on I-105, I tried to use that one, but the button copy signs were too small that it didn't really pop up in the cover photo for it because that just that interchange is just so well known for how large it is. Yeah, that's like one of the poster childs for American stack interchanges, I think. Yeah. It's one of the ones that you usually see brought up within, you know, a short time of starting to talk about that stuff. Um, yeah, one that people keep bringing up to me uh, is the Orange Crush, uh, which is 22, 5, and 57 uh, in Orange County, like uh I, really, I don't think it's too imposing looking, but like you just look at the complexity of the movements and everything. That's kind of a neat one too, when you know what you're interacting with. Yeah, the name Orange Crush comes from the city of Orange, I assume. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yes. I, I would not yes. have figured that out without looking at a map, probably. Yeah, Orange County is kind of a strange place in general. You have a lot of really large cities that like people have never heard of, like Santa Ana. Like, uh, I know that's the county seat, and, like, people are like, oh, Santa Ana Freeway, what's that? It's like, well, it's a city with 300,000 people, and it's got, it's the county seat. Yeah, Santa Most Ana, people... that's the, that's the type of winds, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> also, <laughs> you know? it was also a Mexican general, too, which had nothing to do with the city. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Orange County is really interesting, because a lot of the cities out there would be considered huge cities in just about any other state. Yes. You know, Anaheim... Um, even places like uh, Irvine and Fullerton, um, those are pretty sizable areas that, you know, if you plopped them in Kansas, they would be huge metropolises, no doubt. Yeah. But they're stuck in the shadow of L.A. Yeah, like everything. For some reason, I can never figure this out. And I guess in the past, this makes more sense. Long Beach. Like, what is so special about Long Beach besides the harbor? Like, I've always tried to figure that out. Like, you see it, like, in movies all the time. And it, it, it past tense, it was a lot more disconnected from Los Angeles. Uh, so it kind of made more sense. Like, I, But I guess, like, retroactively, it kind of rivaled San Diego as, in terms of importance. But, like, nowadays, it kind of just blends in with, like, what's going on in Orange County, to me at least. 
Yeah, Long Beach has a lot going on, doesn't it? Um, it's got a lot of strange freeways, like uh, the Terminal Island Freeway, uh, the Vincent Thomas Bridge on uh, California State Route 47. Uh, and it's all centered around like all that commercial freight traffic. Uh, but that's what it's always been is very industrial because uh, it's always been kind of like the the port of entry for the Los Angeles area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the... the uh... There's an Indy car race every year in Long Beach that yes. uh, I make sure to watch on the streets there. Um, the Battleship Iowa has its permanent museum in Long Beach. Um, yep. Yeah, as you said, the port of Long Beach is, I, I would say it's the premier port of entry in California for uh, yes. cargo coming from all over the world. Yes, it's got a little bit of rival Port of Los Angeles. Uh, San Pedro's got a little bit of stuff going on, but they're all kind of like in the same general area, you know, overshadowed by Long Beach. But um, one that I've been looking forward to getting to in the in uh, the Gribble Nation blog series is the Terminal Island Freeway, which kind of is partially still locally maintained for about a mile of it. It is probably the worst condition freeway in the Los Angeles area. Um, but when it was built... It made sense, but it's been totally um, passed over in terms of importance by, you know, 110 and 710. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is that because the uh, Terminal Island was built first? Is that kind of what yeah, happened? Yeah, Terminal Island was the first one. It was, uh, I believe it was finished in 1947. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, it was, and the Navy had a big presence there, so they contributed a lot of money to its construction. And then the interstate system came about within 10 years and... I guess they passed over Terminal Island for interstate designation at some point, right? Yeah, it was the... And the weird thing is, like, you kind of look at the history of, like, um, 110 and 710. Like, they stayed state highways for a very long time, but the Harbor Freeway, um, which is 110 now, uh, used to be 11 in US 6. That was built up relatively early in the 1950s. That mostly predates the interstate era. Hmm. And um, it, it gets really weird with 710. Uh, 710 was originally California State Route 15, got renumbered to the second California State Route 7, then became I-710. I see. And um, what's even stranger is the original California State Route 7 was the San Diego Freeway, which most people would know as I-405. Mm-hmm. Uh, just... I don't know what's going on with 7 being recycled so much, but it's been used three times. Oh, wow. Yeah. 7 can't seem to find a home, right? No, it's on uh, the Mexican border out in Imperial Valley now on its third iteration. Oh, okay. Well, while we're down in Long Beach, I can't move on to something else until I mention the uh, bridges down there. Um, You mentioned the Vincent Thomas, which is a suspension bridge over one side of Terminal Island. And then you've got the Gerald Desmond Bridge over the other side of Terminal Island on 710. Um, the Gerald Desmond was recently replaced with a new high-level cable state bridge, which was completed in the last couple of years. Um, I know of people who worked on that job, because as I was finishing up the, the Tappan Z job in New York, we had a lot of people from national firms who would you know, come in and out to, you know, check on our project because they were kind of looking for technical advice on their project because Gerald Desmond was a couple of years behind ours. Um, And so we were kind of 
feeding them information and they would feed us, you know, some of the field conditions that they were running into. And it sounds like that project was a complete pain in the rear to build. Um, <laughs> it all turned out well in the end, you know, the bridge opened and it looks great and all that. And it looks fantastic. I didn't get to drive it. It wasn't open yet when I was in LA a couple of years ago. Um, but, um, it looks like a really handsome bridge. It looks like they did a great job with it. And, uh, it was great to kind of engage some of the engineers on that job, um, if only one or two times. Yeah, I'm looking forward to, um, we're supposedly going back down to Knott's Berry Farm next month, and that's the one I do have on my agenda to do in the morning is um, all the 710, um, well, the southern section anyways, so I can get that bridge finally, get good pictures of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the Vincent Thomas Bridge is a very interesting one also. It's it's one of those early interstate era suspension bridges. Very classic looking design to it. Um, and I've, I've always liked that one too. Um, it's got a really interesting backdrop to it no matter which way you look at it. You know, you could either look at it with the port in the background or you could see it on a clear day with the mountains behind it. Um, very interesting bridge, very interesting spot, and uh, that's one that I'd like to check out at some point also. Yeah, it's kind of a strange transition because you got 710 suddenly um, ending as a freeway, um, becoming 47. So 47's kind of got a strange transition, like uh, most of the Terminal Island freeway is 103, then it suddenly becomes 47, then it meets I-710, then suddenly jogs west to San Pedro and the Harbor Freeway. Um, the bridge, uh, the Vincent Thomas Bridge, is a freeway. Like, it's not what we would probably consider, like, modern standard. But, like, once you hit the bridge, it's a freeway all the way to the Harbor Freeway Interchange. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, I, I think it's neat. Like, it's very narrow um, compared to probably what most people think. Uh, but it, it's just kind of a really pretty view, especially coming down into San Pedro and towards the Harbor Freeway. I like the color, too. Like, that weird green color. It's kind of got, like, this emerald look to it mm-hmm. yeah yeah there are a few bridges in the east that have that color also and it it's it's a it's an interesting choice um yeah it's reminds me of washington state uh, it's not something you see in california very often is that color yeah you know it is kind of a similar color to the tacoma narrows bridge now yes that i think about it yeah that's true um one of the things that I did when I was in L.A. a couple of years ago, and I know that you've been putting this stuff together for the Gribble Nation blog, is the toll road network east of Irvine, up in the hills there, east of Santa Ana, east of Irvine. Um, you have a whole network of toll highways that were built after the initial um, freeway system was built in the 60s. Um, What's been, what's your kind of experience with those? And, and did you discover anything that you didn't expect to discover when researching that stuff for the blog? I'm talking mainly about Highway 73, 241, 133, and 261. There's, a, there's that cluster of four of them out that way. I've found in my own travels, and I've worked on and off in Los Angeles for, for years, um, that 73 was the most useful of them. Uh, I, I thought the toll rate was outrageous, but I wasn't paid for it at the time. 
Um, but the, you can definitely save some, some significant amount of time um, skipping a lot of I-405. Uh, I've never really found a lot of utility in using the other ones. Like I found some in using 261 and 241 to skip over to 91. Um, but not, nothing too significantly better than, than what I would taking 5 or 55 to it. Um, I think it's mainly... I, I think they kind of over-anticipated how many people were going to use these roads when they told them. Because, like, I've noticed the same thing down in San Diego. Like, the traffic counts on, like, uh, 125 are very low. Um, so, I don't know. Like, it, it's, like, 73, yeah, that that's the one that's got the most utility. 133 is kind of neat because that was an existing state highway uh, that got extended. Um, that one's kind of neat if you're going down towards the coast, but that's a kind of a odd transition too but like if you're in, in that very specific instance where you need to get to 241 or 91 like it's come in handy a couple times for me but like i really don't know who lives on that 241 corridor like i've been always trying to figure that out and i think that's kind of part of the problem why they can never really get any momentum towards finishing it to where they originally intended like it's blocked from um being built to I-5 where they originally wanted it on the state beach down there. And I don't even think, um, what is it, San Clemente? I think they blocked it too. Yeah, I seem to remember that there was some sort of issue down there with San Clemente saying no to an extension down that way. I mean, if you yeah. if they did build that extension, then 241 becomes a lot more useful. Yes, it would be way more useful because you could skip I-5 and you wouldn't get much traffic on it because people who want to pay for it are going to pay for it and people that are not going to be able to. It's like it's like Orlando. Like, when I lived there, it's like anybody, everyone piled on the I-4, but, like, anybody who wanted to use the toll road, you had an easy time. Yeah, that's, yeah. yeah I remember that about Orlando, too, from a several years ago. Like, I-4 was absolute hell, but if you got off I-4 and took any of the toll roads around there, you could get around pretty easily yeah, yeah. I, and i would say probably the biggest difference is the price um between what orange county's got going on versus like what uh apdot and all these agencies in central florida do is out there i i kind of view the toll rates as pretty reasonable but out here like they're a luxury like i don't really mm -hmm. i don't think there's any way around it they're a luxury and most people can't afford it right uh, yeah, the the one thing that I would like to say about these roads uh, before we move on is that talking of scenic views, um, on a clear day on northbound 73, as you start to descend towards Costa Mesa, there's a great view of the metro, um, assuming it's not you know blanketed in fog or smog or whatever. Um, I've always liked how the the metro kind of unfolds right there in front of you. Um, yeah. The other one, the one that I always think of first when it comes to these roads, these toll highways, is 241 northbound approaching 91, where you have that view across the valley to the mountains beyond. Um, that's one of my favorite views in all of LA Metro. Um, so that's that to me. That's worth the toll price to see that view. Yeah, it's it's a pretty one, and 91's got a lot of good views on it too. Yeah, that's one I haven't been able to hit yet, but uh, yeah, I've heard that, good things about it. Yeah, that's one that kind of gets uh, a lot of people. It's usually a priority for them when they come out here is to do 91. 
Um, but like scenic views, I mean, like the obvious ones, like we've already talked about the Arroyo Seco Parkway, but like, I think the Harbor honestly rivals it going northbound. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the one, the one that I, surprisingly isn't all that great is, uh, is the Hollywood freeway. It doesn't really get, it kind of skirts downtown at an odd angle. Um, but 210, um, 210, the Foothill freeway, when you're departing I-5 eastbound, uh, you get some awesome views on the mountains there. Yeah, I can imagine that being a really good one, too. Yeah. Yeah, then, um, you know, like, there's the obvious ones, like, two, you know, when you're coming down uh, into uh, La Canada, Flint Ridge, uh, you get a really beautiful down look at downtown Los Angeles. Uh, the Glendale Freeway, which is California State Route 2, you get some really beautiful views of downtown, uh, kind of like from the Eagle Rock neighborhood area. Mm, okay. Yeah, these are all freeways I haven't driven yet, so I'm, yeah, I'm making mental notes here. Yeah, and trying to make sure I list the route number when I say the freeway name is just such a habit at this point. Um, they all have names that I think a, a lot of us out here on the West Coast know what they are, but I don't think most people when they visit the area outside of the major ones really catch on what they are. Yeah, right. You kind of, if you're an outsider like me, you kind of want to know what the route number is just so you can kind of get your bearings a little bit just to know yeah, exactly it, what you're talking about. Yeah, and it gets kind of strange with some of these transitions. So like the Hollywood Freeway, that incorporates parts of uh, US 101 and California State Route 170. There's like not a lot of really salt continuity to it unless you're heading to a specific location uh like another one would be the ventura freeway which starts out as california state route 134 but goes all the way out to santa barbara as part of us 101 mm -hmm. yeah we have the same thing here in new york where most people just refer to the roads by their names they don't refer to them by route number yeah um, and i imagine i guess that's kind of the same thing that what's going on out here in la um, yeah, it, it, it's kind of. It, I always thought it was kind of interesting because you like it really kind of they only became a thing when they started building those freeways. Uh, from what I can tell, in a lot of these California highways and public works, is like they kind of refer to the route number for a while. Uh, but before that, all the state highways had names too. So, like um, example would be. Like the coast route, like they would refer to US 101 as the coast route, like from the 20s into the 30s. Uh, US 99 is the inland route. It's like it just seemed like it kind of was thematic, and they brought it back when they started building the freeways. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's um, let's spend a few minutes talking about mountain drives because I know that you know we've teased it off and on here, but you know you're never too far from a mountain range of some sort. Uh, in LA, and I know you've got some experience driving the mountain roads in, you know, whether north of LA or east of LA. Um, what are some of your favorite mountain drives that you've you've encountered over the years? Um, out in just the whole basin area, the best one I'm probably going to say is California State Route 18, the Rim of the World Highway, uh, especially the initial ascent from San Bernardino to Crestline is uh, is an absolute masterpiece. It's a four-lane expressway which borders on being a freeway. It is absolutely uh, amazing to me every time I drive that that they were able to build a four-lane 
divided highway through that area, and it tops off with this trumpet inter interchange hanging off the side of a mountain, uh, which the interchange is California State Route 138. Um, it, it's just amazing to me that they were able to build a stage road up into that. Uh, I think most people, they're going to go for Angeles Crest, uh, California State Route 2. I, my personal take, and this probably will sound a little controversial <laughs> for anybody who's been in the L.A. area, I think 2 is a little overrated. Um, and I, the reason I think that is there's just too many people that use it. I like Angeles Forest Highway, which is uh, Los Angeles County N3, uh, a lot more than I like uh, California State Route 2. San Francisco Canyon Road, uh, which is near uh, Santa Clarita, that is a, one of the oldest roads in California. It's been built up and modernized, but as far as a two-lane road, it's really neat um, because it's kind of a good alternate if I-5's backed up and you don't want to jog all the way out to 14 to get out to the desert, but... It is just a really pretty view in that canyon. You get a lot of the infrastructure that goes on with the LA Aqueduct system. Um, you know, you got Mulholland Drive. Another one I kind of tend to think is a little overrated. I tend to prefer um, 27 and 23, uh, 23 more so than 27. But I could probably sit here and list a lot of ones, a lot of these mountain roads, like 39, even up to the closure points, kind of nice. Uh, California 330, uh, City Creek, that's a pretty view. It's kind of a modernish two-lane expressway design. Uh, and even 38, uh, coming out of Big Bear, I really like that one too. Uh, California State Route 243, the Panoramic Highway, and the Pines to, Pines, Pines to Palms Highway, which is California State Route 74, coming out of the Riverside area. Uh, going towards Palm Springs uh, and Coachella Valley, even the Ortega Highway, which goes the other direction as part of 74. All those are really, really nice. I just took a bunch of notes on the things that you <laughs> just uh, listed there. I'm going to have to check some of those out next time I'm out that way. Yeah, yeah. there's, there's uh, just a bunch of them that are really, really nice. And I, you got, like, the obscure stuff, too, like, you know... Um, you know, like the old ridge routes, parts of it are accessible, parts aren't. Um, that's kind of a neat one to check out if people are interested in the kind of a historic highway. And even on the fringes, like when you get to Ventura, like if you're looking for a driver's road, I'd really recommend uh, California State Route 33, the Maricopa Highway, heading out towards the Central Valley. That is just a, a masterpiece of a fun road. What are your thoughts on um, I-5 north of uh, San Fernando, like up through New Hall and Grapevine, up that way. It's it's nice, but there's some problems I have with it, uh, and namely the problem I have with it, there is no redundant capacity. So, like, whenever there is a problem in there, and there's a lot of problems, you're screwed. Like, you can't get out if you get just if you get past Castaic going northbound, you're you're hosed. You're, you, unless you know how to get to Templin Highway and double back, you're you're not getting out of there. It's a really pretty view and everything, but the reason it's like that is because the older alignment of US 99 to the west, uh, which was an expressway through Piru Gorge, um, is blocked off because it's part of um, Pyramid Lake now. So it's just been kind of like an infamous choke point uh, wherever there's a problem because a lot of the freight traffic tends to the wreck break down and people kind of pile up behind it. It gets snow. Um, 
in the winter time though like if you can avoid the snow like when it's actually snowing it's really a nice drive especially when you get towards gorman lebick and tahone pass uh, i even know of like an old overlook where you could see part of the old ridge route and grapevine canyon as you're descending down into the central valley that's really really a nice vista yeah i've heard a lot of things about grapevine pass in particular um some good and some bad. Like, I think you outlined a lot of the negative about the road. With And usually it comes with, you know, talk about, you know, road closures due to weather and whatnot. But, um, yeah, I've also heard that it's a very pretty drive. Um, it is. It, it's a very, very pretty segment of interstate. And I would probably argue it is the prettiest part of i-5 i think the only other part that really rivals it is the sacramento river canyon up by lake shasta you don't get a lot you don't get a lot of scenery in between grapevine canyon and in lake shasta on i-5 mm-hmm. like it's strange it transitions into this completely flat freeway for like 400 miles after you get out of grapevine canyon yeah well, I think you've given me plenty of new roads to add to my to-do list the next time I'm out in L.A., which will hopefully be sooner rather than later. And um, I think we've done a good job of kind of profiling everything that the L.A. Metro has to offer uh, as far as roads are concerned. I have um, one last order of business with you on this segment, and that is who do you like in the game? On paper, I like the Rams. Uh, I'm so I'm gonna go with the Rams because they should be the better of the two teams. But what I've noticed out of the Rams all season, especially when I went and saw them play against the Lions, is they tend to play down to their competition most of the time, anyways. Um, so you have these exceptions with the Rams, like they started out super hot during the year. Uh, they ended up beating the Buccaneers, and they beat them again in the playoffs, obviously. Uh, and right now, it kind of looks like they're, you know, trending towards the right direction. But, like, I look at the 49ers game, and I'm struggling to understand how the Rams lose to Jimmy Garoppolo six times in a row. Like, that doesn't make sense to me, given that the personnel that the Rams have. So that's, like, a concern for me if I'm a Rams fan is, like, are they going to, like, play down to the Bengals? Um not that I'm saying the Bengals are a bad team because like they've certainly gotten through some decent competition in the AFC, but on paper, I, I, the matchup heavily favors the Rams, and I think they'll end up winning. Um, I think there'll probably be some hesitancy to probably go all in, uh, kind of like with the San Francisco game with their offense, um, but I think they'll pull it out maybe by three points at the end. I think the line was 3.5. If I recall, at least the opening line on the game. Mm. Do you think that the Rams playing in their home stadium will make much of a difference? They didn't in the last game. Uh, uh, And that's that's, an interesting thing. Um, I I would think that more of the ticket ticket buyer base for the Super Bowl is going to be from the West Coast. So I would say the Rams are probably going to have a huge home field advantage compared to um, what they saw in the San Francisco game. Um, it just I don't think a lot of the fan base from Cincinnati is going to be able to travel and afford um, hotels, lodging, parking uh, at SoFi. So I think it will be a heavy Rams crowd. And yeah, that should the, be in their favor. The tickets I'm seeing for the game are like 10000 a apiece on average. Yeah. I mean, yeah. 
that that's by far the most expensive Super Bowl ticket in history. Yeah. Um, I'm sure part of it has to do with it being at SoFi and LA and all that, but yeah, the, the ticket prices have gone through the roof the last couple of years. Um, and that I would think that, yeah, that definitely favors the home fan base. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, then, um, so in parking at SoFi is just bad right now. Like, uh, even for the NFC championship game, I think like the average parking ticket towards the end was like $400. Wow. Uh, and like any of the parking garages like, in the nearby area where you had to like, like a walk, walk a mile or two is like 200 bucks. So it's just uh, I don't I don't think personally LA's really showing itself to be a very good Super Bowl destination, but I think it will work out for the Rams. Well, they do have a history of hosting the Super Bowl, right? Whether it was at yep. the LA Coliseum or at the Rose Bowl, um, the city has a history of hosting this game. So I don't know, maybe SoFi will be the next one that kind of takes over from those two and becomes a a somewhat regular stop on the Super Bowl calendar. Yeah, it's it's a nice stadium. I really enjoyed it when uh, we went and saw the Lions play the Rams there. It's a very neat design. It's near the old L.A. Forum, um, but like you, you got to prepare for some L.A.-centric stuff. Like It's a pain getting out of there. Uh, I, I just wish they put it somewhere somewhere else. Like I know most of the other land parcels were too expensive, but like I hate its location. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's going to be a game that I'm sure a lot of people are going to be riveted by. I know you will be, being the resident Californian and having a lot of Rams fans in your family, so I know you'll be paying attention to it. It'll be an interesting uh, interesting game, for sure, on the 13th. So, um, Tom, thank you very much for coming in and uh, talking about uh, some L.A. stuff with us, helping break it down. This was a lot of fun. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You got it, man. We'll be back with one final segment on the Super Bowl preview show featuring the official prediction of yours truly. That's coming right up right after this. Back here for one final segment on the Gribble Nation Roadcast Super Bowl Preview Show, which is being fueled by Anchor FM. Um, we've done just about everything that we wanted to do on this show. We've talked about Cincinnati. We've talked about Los Angeles, the two metro areas featured in Super Bowl 56. Uh, the one thing that I haven't done that we will do now is giving you my views on the game itself and my official prediction. Um, you know, this is one of those games that is very difficult for me to make a pick for. Um, if you are familiar with my travels in the month of January of 2022, you may know that I was uh, privileged or not to watch the Cincinnati Bengals in a playoff game in person. Um, so I know a thing or two about what they're capable of, just, you know, from that point of view. You know, they're one of those teams that, you know, you could say whatever you want about them, but they absolutely deserve to be in the game, you know, because of them beating the top two seeds in the conference on the road in consecutive weeks. 
they absolutely deserve to be in the Super Bowl, and they're going to be formidable. You know, I know that a lot of people are going to pick the Rams. The Rams are sort of the darling pick. You know, they're the flashier roster. They have the more they have more superstar players. Um, but you know, the Rams are just a very weird team to me, and they've been weird all year. Like you, you know that you know you heard Tom describe it a little bit in our last segment about how they. They play weird games against opponents where they should dominate games and yet they don't, or they come out really flat in games. Um, and they don't play up to their potential against really good teams. Um, I can remember a game earlier this season where the Rams were heavily favored against the Tennessee Titans and the Titans mopped the floor with them. So you know, th- this is one of those situations where it's hard for me to get a good grasp of what the Rams are, but... You know, you wonder if Cincinnati has one last great game in them uh, on the biggest stage. Um, this is a game that I can easily see the Rams winning. Um, it's also a game that I can easily see the Cincinnati winning. Um, and, you know, perhaps given, given my AFC fandom, I think I'm going to pick Cincinnati in this game. Um I think the spread was three and a half favoring the Rams. I think Cincinnati's going to cover. Um, I'll take the points with Cincinnati. I will pick Cincinnati to win Super Bowl 56. Well, let's see. Cincinnati beat the Titans in Nashville by a score of 19 to 16, and it was a defensive game. I tell you, people are talking about this game, the Super Bowl being an offensive shootout and a lot of points being scored. I don't see that at all. Um, I don't see a lot of points in this game. I see this being a low scoring game. Um, Both defenses are formidable and are playing really well. I think the key to the game is going to be the Cincinnati offensive line against the Los Angeles Rams pass rush and Aaron Donald and the defensive front. If they can, do a little bit to hold them in check. I think Cincinnati's got what it takes to put enough points on the board to win this game. Um, I'm going to go with Cincinnati by a score of 19 to 16 in Super Bowl 56. That's my prediction. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Um, it was a great, it was great fun to bring it to you and may the best team win on February 13th until next time. This is Dan from the Gribble Nation Roadcast signing off, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you for tuning in to uh, an episode of the Gribble Nation Roadcast. Uh, We hope uh, you get to listen to us again soon. Have a good one.